Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Guys. This is episode 61, and uh, still some new audio video changes. Uh, I'm trying this out in 4K on my camera, so we'll see how that works. Uh, I'm trying this out on a new new used mic, a Shore mic, which probably sounds, I would guess, identically the same. Uh, but nonetheless, I am still doing all this audio stuff and video stuff, trying to be less terrible at it. So. Uh, anyway, if you do watch the YouTube version, you'll probably notice that it's slightly better, about as good as it could possibly be, I guess, at this point. But anyway, we'll see. Uh, if you send me an email or a message, uh, I continue to be fascinated about how everyone is different in their communication style, which I've learned over the last year for sure. Some people message on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, email, website comments even. Uh, and I got a bunch of those this week um, as a request from my last episode, which I just asked everyone plainly, could you let me know why you listen? Uh, just curious, like if you're a parent, you're a coach, you're a player, like what it is you kind of get out of this so that I can honestly just make content more relevant to you. So I got a lot of good feedback. I think there's a lot of, from what I've gathered, there's a lot of parents who have kids, obviously, and uh, they're trying to just navigate the youth baseball waters as best they can. And I think that's an admirable goal. I think it's really tough. And I'm definitely planning some more stuff in the future. And I think my book, when it gets finished, it's out of my hands for the moment, which I'm really excited about. I think that'll also shed a lot of light on just like the journey that you follow, because obviously I followed it. So thank you if you sent me an email. If you still feel compelled to do that, I'd love to hear from you. So I really do appreciate it. Uh, so this week, I'm going to talk about things uh, the average baseball fan maybe doesn't get when they watch Major League Baseball on TV. Uh, I mean this in, I'm, this is not going to be one of those like condescending tone, that's absolutely not the point. Um, there's just a lot of things that even I still like fail to appreciate the more I habituate to it and I watch it on TV. Um, you know, watching the postseason, this is, I'm recording this, I guess probably three or four days before the World Series will start between the Dodgers and the Red Sox. And those guys are just so good, and the game is just so clean. And even the umpires, as much ridicule and scorn as they take, they're still extremely good at their job, especially compared to youth umpires and uh, even minor league and college umpires. Like, they're just very, very good. I think a lot of that stuff goes underappreciated. So, number one, I want to address the Manny Machado thing because I tweeted a bunch about it, and I watched it happen live. And number one him stepping on the guy's foot was just so out of left field. It just like kind of shocked me because I don't personally care that much about the dirty slides into second base. To me, that's still within the confines of the game. It doesn't make it right. And it's not because you can definitely hurt a guy like Chase Utley did a couple years ago, but it's still like part of the game. You know what I mean? Like if you're playing basketball and you just like, you go for a, I don't know, for a block and you're really rough and you just like knock the guy over. I'm not a basketball player, so probably not a great analogy. But it's still like that was part of the game. Whereas what Machado did, in my mind, is kind of just like punching a guy in the stomach while you're just like waiting for a rebound. You know, like that's and I hadn't like really seen that in a long time. And, uh, I, I, I couldn't think and I still can't aside from Albert Bell just like absolutely punching Fernando Vina in the face, which is if you haven't watched that video, Google or YouTube, Fernando Vina. Albert Bell. It's unbelievable. Albert Bell is just charging from first to second on a double play ball and he they just run into each other. But Albert Bell, like, literally just punches him in the face. It's just unbelievable <laughs> that he wasn't just, like, kicked out of the out of the league. But 
I digress. Uh, so that obviously I have a big problem with because it just like it made no sense. Like there's cameras on every part and not that you should be uh, conducting yourself based on cameras. It's not like you should be nice because only, you know, Santa's watching, but it just didn't. I haven't seen anyone do something that strange like that, just like malicious. And it wasn't like it was the biggest deal in the world. Uh, it wasn't like he, I don't know, pulled out a knife and shanked him on his way by. But it still was just like really strange. I can't. I don't have a, a memory from my baseball career of someone doing something like that. Again, like the, the the hard slides, the stuff like that, like throwing at guys. It's probably not that different, but it just it feel it felt different. But anyway, the first one of these six items that I want to address is hustle. So Machado, after that, rightfully so, got a lot of scorn. He got a lot of, you know, like yeah, he's a dirty player. That was BS. That was just completely uncalled for 100% true. And then just like anything else, when you screw up and you're public and it's an ignominious uh, failure, he, everything else got called out, right? They called him out for his hustle. And here's, here's my thing. I'm not really defending Manny Machado because my view of him as of today is not very positive, but everyone makes a big fuss out of guys not hustling out ground balls. And here's my official statement of it. Number one, the Major League Baseball season is incredibly long. And a lot of these guys are playing hurt or they're playing with swollen ankles. They got some knee pain. They have this. They have that. There's a lot of stuff that the fans just – you're just not aware of that they play through. Uh, I wasn't even aware of Jose Altuve needing knee surgery until they told me. So I could have easily arrived at the ballpark and not realized that uh, Jose Altuve, like, literally was – his knee was literally killing him. So when there's like an injury that's that big, that if you're not really tuned into baseball, you could just not even know that he's playing on that. There's tons of little stuff. They're just never going to tell the press that just not worth telling That's like, yeah, my shoulder hurts. Like chances are the catcher's shoulder hurts or his elbow hurts, but he's been playing that way the whole year. Chances are the outfitters knees bother numbers. He's got a little tweak in his obliques or his ankles or something, but just like my experience, my last bunch of years was that pretty much everyone had something that nagged at them. And, when you have guys that are chronically bugged by something, you, you take little opportunities to try to help it heal without coming out of the lineup. So I was talking to a, a great guy, a great coach named Joe. He came down and visited today, and he, uh, he was talking about how they went and watched Christian Yelich play, who I have a, a lot of respect for, especially after him speaking up against what Machado did. Uh, he explained that he saw them play in person in Milwaukee, and, and Yelich at one point walked off the field from left field. And we talked about this, and he didn't know why, and I didn't know why, but I said, I almost guarantee he had something going on that the trainer said, like, look, just walk off the field between innings. Like, you can play on this. It's going to only get better. It's going to take a while to get better, but it's, we're going to give it the best shot if you just walk off the field rather than running your 260 feet from left or whatever it was. So I don't, I don't know that. I don't have any evidence of that. But given that I've seen him play enough, that he seems like an upstanding guy, a guy who plays the game the right way, who in general is a hustler and like a team leader and a just overall like respectable player, I can guarantee he wouldn't have just walked off the field. I guess I can't guarantee it, but I pretty much guess that he wouldn't walk off the field unless there was some like medical reason why he did that, right? And people saw it and they didn't know why and it seemed looked really bad. And then that same game, he was like kind of like jogging after, coasting after balls in the gap and like kind of just strolling down to first base when he was out. And uh, it all sort of coincides that he was probably nursing an injury no one needed to know about it, uh, but he wasn't going to come out of the lineup because he was still more valuable maybe at 80% than he was on the bench at 0%. Uh, but he was like, that was probably the plan for him to so just walk from the outfield and just 
trot to first base because look, you're out anyway. Like, let's get you healthy in a month. Let's just take it easy now. And that's often the case. Now, the other thing, so just assume that sometimes guys are doing that just to like save their legs, just to get a little bit healthier, perhaps that's more often the case than you'd think. So that's one reason I think hustling down to first when you're out on a routine ground ball, not that big a deal. Number two, guys don't not hustle when there's a chance they're going to be out. I mean, rarely once in a while they do, but when they hit a ball, like it's a double play ball, they book it down the line. When there's a chance right off the bat, they know they might beat it out. They book it down the line. The only time guys really don't run it down the line is when they hit it pretty hard right at someone and they're out on that ball 99% of the time. And as much as people want to say like, Hey, you know, these are guys being paid millions of dollars. They should hustle down the line just because like so many people and kids would kill to be a major leaguer for even one day. That's somewhat valid, but at the same time, it's kind of human nature when you just pretty much know the outcome to just not give it your all to not waste your effort. It's just like, I feel like it's an evolutionary thing. Animals don't sprint around the desert just to sprint. And I don't think any of us really want to waste effort when we just for sure know it's wasted, right? So when you're, you know, a big lefty power here in the major leagues and you hit a one hopper to the second baseman, do we need to like watch you sprint through first base just to watch you sprint through first base? Is there really any point? And with most of these, uh, you know, there's, of course, once in a while, there's an errant throw where if you were hustling, you might beat that out. That might be one out of 200. Uh, it's, it's really not that frequent. And a lot of the times when they overthrow it, it, it goes to the screen, you could be jogging and you'd still be safe. You'd be exactly as safe if you, if you ran down there and you were bang, bang, right? So if it's a legit overthrow getting past the first baseman, whether you run 80% down the line or 100%, you're going to be safe. So really the only times where it matters to be Johnny Hustle down the line is when it's bang, bang, where like it's just it takes the first baseman off the bag a little bit towards the plate where he could catch it and, sw and swipe the tag down, where if you're just getting past him at that point because you ran hard, he won't be able to tag you or you can dive or whatever. But balls that take the first baseman towards the outfield where they're leaning and they like get dragged off the base, they can't get their foot back on the base that fast anyway because their momentum takes them off. They have to like right themselves and pick themselves up and then kind of like tag the bag with their foot that way. That takes too long. Even if you jog, you'd still kind of beat them down there. And granted, I'm sure you could come up with counter arguments that, no, I've seen this happen. I've seen that happen. Sure. But on the whole... You hit a hard ground ball, and major leaguers hit the ball really hard. So their ground balls are in the shortstop's glove within six, you know, three, four steps out of the box, if not faster than that. So they, like, just pretty much know the outcome. And major leaguers are so amazingly good at making all the plays. So as far as everyone, like, coming down on him for his hustle, number one, he clearly doesn't hustle that much. And I, I just, like, don't think it's that big of a deal uh, for some of the reasons that I've given. I also don't think it's realistic that we need to – like, and I understand the, the, the example we set to kids, but at the same time, I think everyone, I think it's human nature to not waste your time when it's, you know, it's a waste, a waste of time. And when you hit a seat at an infielder and you know, you're out, there it is. I don't think there's any point. I don't think you're really like, I don't think anyone really in the stands like, Oh, good for him. He ran full speed down the base. Uh, that's the, like the whole, like, that's the way the game's played. I think the, Playing the game hard in the right way is a long-term thing. I don't think it's a short-term thing where if you just you sprint out every ball, even when you're out by a mile, I don't think that's really playing the game harder. I think playing the game harder is 
baseball is a hard, long mental game. And grinding it out over a long period of time, like staying in the lineup, staying mentally focused, having good at bats, hustling when hustling is required, when it's relevant and necessary, not when it's useless, conserving energy when it's useful, um, preparing to play every day, doing all the things that are necessary to be at your best. I think that is the, that is like being a hard-nosed player. And I don't think we can just distill being a hard-nosed ball player down to running down through the first baseline. Because like I said, a lot of the times, and it, this isn't exclusive to Machado, it's, it's not exclusive to anyone. Guys, when they hit a hard ground ball at someone and they know they're out, they don't run full speed. They just don't because there's just no point. And, you know, there's a term eyewash, which has been popularized recently. And it just gets gotten annoying. But what eyewash is, is when you're just doing stuff just to, like, make the people that are watching think you're doing something. It's like, you know, running down the baseline because not because you really, like, are that kind of player, but because, you, you know, people are watching and you want to look like that kind of player. To me, that's kind of what that is at the major league level. And even at just even at some some lower levels, I don't know that you could say, I don't know that this guy deserves to play at a better level because he runs through first base. There's just a lot of other intangibles that matter more as a player, and I just don't think it's that big a deal. I'm just gonna stop on that note. I just don't think it's that big a deal that you don't hustle. Now I'm not saying that that sums up Machado as a player because I know he is probably lazy in other regards. But also, he's an exceptional player, and he doesn't do that without having some hard work that you don't see behind the scenes. So whatever his qualification of work is, um, he's getting it done because it's not that easy just to show up. Like The guy is not just like playing video games all night and showing up to the ballpark, throwing on his uniform and going and, and dominating the major leagues like he is. There's a lot of work that's going in, and he's just doing it in one compartment and then just sort of eliminating the stuff that's not necessarily that important to him. And I, I sort of have a brain like that where I don't retain lots of information that I don't find super useful. Like you cannot, you know, I'm a pitching guy and I know a lot about pitching mechanics. I know what the research says on a lot of pitching mechanics. And I've read a lot of research studies, but I do not remember who wrote them. I do not remember the names of them. I could not tell you what year or any of that stuff. Some people love, they can recite, oh yeah. Uh, this you know, Dr. Fleissig, 1996, that was his study, or oh, I can pull that study up. I don't remember any of that stuff. I remember the take the takeaway message, how it's relevant to me, and then my brain throws all the other stuff in the trash. So I know there's the idea of taking the optimal dose, not just the maximum dose. I'm a person who wants to take the optimal dose of whatever I'm doing. I don't want to take six Advil when two would do the trick. I don't want to do X amount of work when X minus... 12% would do the trick. I was like that in high school. I got mediocre grades because I didn't care because I didn't find a lot of the information relevant to me. And when I could get an 89.6 and get an A, I chose to get an 89.6 because it was rounded up. Why would I get an 89.6 or why would I get a 99 that counts as an A when I could get an 89.6 that counts just the same as an A? It seems illogical and it seems wasteful of my effort that I could spend in some other way it's like, I'm not trying to get the best A. I'm just trying to get what I want. So if I want an A, I'll get an 89.6 and I'll spend the extra effort that another kid might have spent six or eight extra hours in that semester or 20 extra hours getting a 99. I'll spend that extra 20 hours doing something that I actually care about. 
all, we'll both get the same A, but I got more time to do other stuff that I found valuable. That's kind of how I've been. And that's sort of my view on, on, on hustling down to first base because I just, I know the purists will probably come after me on this, but I just don't think it's really that big a deal. I don't think the baseball gods are rolling in their graves when you just don't hustle out a ground ball that you're out on. And I don't think just being safe on it one time out of 100 means you just hustle out every time. This is where I fall on it. Um, next thing I want to ramble about is the cutter. And I meant to have a visual aid here, but I don't. Fortunately, I have this nice gray background. I'm not filming in the same location in my apartment tonight. Uh, but the cutter is its an extremely misunderstood pitch. I did a whole podcast about this before, but I also fielded some questions on my Instagram and some sort of mind-numbing uh, discussion about it. Here's the problem with comparing what your kids throw at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 to what guys throw on TV. So if you, and the cutter is the best example of this. The cutter is not a pitch that a 12-year-old can throw. They can pick a grip and they can try to make the ball move to their glove side, which is what a cutter is one of the things that a cutter does. But they almost can't, not almost, they cannot possibly throw a cutter in the same sense that a cutter is thrown by a higher level player. Because what a cutter is, is a fastball goes down a straight tube. I have a, imagine you have a big piece of PVC. The fastball goes straight down that PVC to its target, right? Now, a cutter goes straight down that same tube until the last little bit, and then the slight amount of tilt on the ball, where you've turned it just a little bit sideways, but still thrown it 99% as hard as the fastball, or 97%, it just takes a little sharp veer to the left. So basically, with a cutter, less movement is what makes the pitch great. And you have to throw super duper hard to throw the pitch so that it tracks down that same PVC pipe so that it actually rolls down it without getting off on trajectory before it moves at the end. So, uh, and I meant to pick this up on the way home, but I didn't. I was gonna get two like milkshake straws where you bend it so you have the straight straw and the straw with a little bit of a bend at the end. And only when you throw really, really hard can you force your fastball to look, or your cutter, down the fastball's straw, down this fastball PVC pipe, till the very, very end. You can't, if you throw slower, the trajectory changes a lot sooner. It goes off, it goes out of that PVC pipe early, and it doesn't look anything like the pitch. So when you see guys like Kenley Jansen, like Mariana Rivera, throwing a cutter exclusively, it's because the hitter's brain does not understand it. He sees fastball all the way through, like the tunnel point where he's made his decision of where that ball is going to be, and he swings, and then it cuts. But only it's only that pitch, and that's what a cutter is. That That is, in a sense, is what a cutter is. The cutter is not one of those pitches that there's grades of it where when you're, when you're 12, you're, you can throw a cutter. They're so incredibly different that they're not even the same pitch. A curveball is a curveball. You throw a curveball when you're 12, if you get spin, it'll go up and it'll come down. It's very different than a fastball. And then curveballs increase in quality as they get older, and this is the same principle. The harder you throw your curveball and the better the spin is, the more it looks like a fastball longer. So it actually flies on the fastball's trajectory longer before it deviates from it. And so, but at the core, a curveball at 12 is still a curveball at the major league level. They're just, they don't look anything like each other. Uh, from a hitter's perspective, like a curveball from a major leaguer is so sharp, it's like astonishing. But 
it still has like the same general shape and it does the same general thing. Cutter's not that way. You physically can't throw a cutter when you're 12 years old. You certainly can't throw it when you're eight or nine or 10 because the pitch will not move in any relevant sense like it will at the higher velocities. I have lots of kids that throw me accidental cutters. They get a little bit on the side of the ball and it has a little bit of a slider dot or it has like a bullet spin and it'll like move slightly to the left, but it's absolute garbage. And that's not what a cutter is that you see on TV. It's not a pitch that just goes Mrr. A cutter on TV, I threw a cutter and I've told this story before in a presentation. I threw a cutter when I was learning it in 14 that it was like dead straight and I couldn't see it move. It was like dead straight and the hitter starts to swing as a lefty and he commits to his swing and then it cut and he literally said, oh, sh as he swung and he missed it. And that's what you're seeing on TV. When you see Kenley Jansen just throw cutters over and over and over and the guys miss it, you're like, what's going on? Like they know it's coming. It's because their brain just doesn't get it. It starts to swing. It sees fastball. It can't unsee fastball. You like can't tell the spins apart. So you only see fastball and then you swing and then it moves and it's just like terrifying. And they just go, oh my God, what's happening? And it misses their bat. But I've caught a million kids throwing accidental cutters where they just get on the side of the ball and it has a mixture of like slidery, just junky spin. Zero of them look have any effect like that. They just like slowly meander to the other part of the plate. And it's just in no way if you're to see one at the big league level or even like the college pro level that you would say that's the same pitch as this 10-year-old throw. So to say like, oh, I give my kid a cutter grip and he just turns a little bit and it's a, it's a different pitch. It's not a cutter. It just isn't. It's so fundamentally different that it just like they're not even comparable. And uh, when you accidentally make a ball cut, it doesn't. It's not like you threw a cutter because they don't have the same action. To actually throw a cutter the way the major leaguers throw cutters, you have to be intentional about it. You have to actually tilt the ball, not just like put a little bit of sloppy spin into it. You have to actually be intentional and like tilt the axis of the pitch so it's flying hard like a fastball with a slightly sideways spin axis it's like a four seamer spin slightly angled and that's why at the last little bit it pushes off and it just terrifies hitters it just takes this sharp jagged thing when you have a really good one they just can't do anything with it and back in the day mariano rivera threw his hard enough like he was like 92 93 94 cutters that was really hard back then that was hard for a fastball back then and so hitters like that's why they had no chance and now there's more guys now that like kenley jansen would throw 100 if he threw four seamers, but he throws cutters all the time because no one like you wouldn't th want to throw a four seamer when you can throw a 96 mile per hour cutter because their brains just don't get it. So it's just a fundamentally different pitch. And having learned it in my later uh, years, it was also the hardest pitch to learn. Anyone who says it's not hard isn't throwing the same pitch. It's so hard to learn because you can't see it move. And I posted this on my Instagram recently. So if you haven't been on my Instagram recently, definitely check it out. I posted a video of a cutter that I threw to a, a guy who I greatly respect, a really good young player who was an independent only guy like myself named Scott Kelly. And I didn't post this on Instagram to like show my dominance of him. I remember this because I had a friend in the stands, Mike Ashmore, who is a, a Somerset's Patriot, Somerset Patriots beat writer. He also does a lot of like hockey and he's, I think he's been covering the, the postseason too. He's a, he's a good sports writer and a good person. He, um, he would take video at Somerset and he was there when I was in Somerset with spring training and I got cut, but he would just like take some video of me and he, we would always kind of catch up a little bit when I'd come back into town playing against the Patriots. So on this night, he got video of me from behind and I remembered throwing this cutter to this guy, Scott, 
and I remembered for a fact that I didn't know if it cut. I threw it, and I'd been just learning the pitch. I'd been throwing it for a month or two, and on this particular one, it looked completely dead straight to me, but he hit it into the ground. And obviously, I knew it was a cutter, but I didn't know if it cut. And when guys hit my fat, my four-seamer, they never put it in the ground. They always hit it in the air. It was like so exclusively a fly ball pitch or a swing and miss pitch or a take pitch that I couldn't get a ground ball. I just I think that's my spin rate and all this other stuff, but I couldn't get a ground ball. So I knew it might have done something because he hit it on the ground, which is not normal for me. So after the game, I went to the tape because he sent it to me, and uh, I looked at the tape, and sure enough, it like you can quick you can really easily see it cut. I threw a four-seamer the first pitch, and I threw a cutter the second pitch, and you can see the difference on them, so I encourage you to go check them out. And it, it just, like, blew my mind. And that's the hard part about that pitch because you can't see it doing anything. And so when you're learning something, it's kind of like if you're teaching your son to throw a curveball, but he had to do it in the dark or with his eyes closed. How would he ever have any idea of, like, what it's doing? You could tell him, oh, that one was really good, and he'd be like, okay. And then he'd do it again, close his eyes, throws it. But he has no feedback, like no tangible feedback to say like, oh, you're right, that's a good pitch. I'm doing the right thing. And that's the thing with the cutter. I had a bunch of teammates teach me it. And uh, one of them, my buddy Sean, he, uh, he was ready to having the best cutter in the Mets minor league organization. And he said, yeah, it's really hard to throw because when you throw it in practice, it will not move at all. It, and, and that's correct. If you see it move, you're making it into a slider. And in a game, it will be a, it will be too big. It will be a slider. It won't be a cutter. So you have to throw it, and you have to get a good partner. So I threw to him a bunch. He's like, you have to go by the feel and by the spin, because when you can spin it right and the feel is right, that's how when you then ratchet up to full speed, it will actually start to cut. But it cuts so little in the game, only a couple inches, that when you're not throwing it hard, it won't cut at all. And so you have to just trust that I'm telling you the right thing when we play catch and that you're getting the sense of like what it feels like and what it kind of looks like because it does kind of look different. It's got like a very subtle roundness almost, even though it's pretty much dead straight. And then sure enough, you're going into the game. And this is what was scary about it. As I was practicing this pitch, I hadn't really like seen it cut except for when I got around it and threw crappy sliders. And then I'm like getting ready to go in the game. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to throw this in the game tonight. And now I'm throwing it in the bullpen full speed. And I'm just like hoping they start to cut and they like – kind of do kind of don't but even then it's hard to tell when they do and so again like back to that that moment where I got it on video I was like wow it actually cut but I remember that distinctly because I could not see that pitch move in the game it looked completely straight to me so when you watch cutters on tv because they're more prevalent than ever uh just like kind of marvel at it I mean it's it's an astonishing pitch it's the I guarantee it's the most misunderstood pitch in baseball just because most guys have never thrown it before, and if you haven't thrown it at a high level, it's just really hard to understand what it is. What it is. If I hadn't thrown it that year, I wouldn't be qualified to talk about it in any sense. I just like wouldn't understand like what the process was like and how to throw it, and it's it's just not like other pitches. Um, and again, it's just I, I'm privileged that I actually learned it because I feel like I got some like insider information because I didn't know anything about the cutter before and. It's just like, it was such an enigma compared to other pitches. It was really, really difficult. So that's what I'm all I'm going to say with the cutter today. So uh, after that, I want to just briefly talk about fielders and umpires. So to really appreciate how good these umpires are and how good these fielders are, I mean, even the guys that are kind of like bad umpires, 
they make like 98 or 99 percent of the calls like when you look at their charts and there's some that are better than others obviously they still make the right call the vast majority of the time now we're still in a world where there's increased scrutiny because obviously technology is better there's cameras on everything they're replaying everything there's a strike zone projected on tv all this stuff is just making it harder to do your job well whereas five or ten years ago these guys you wouldn't know that they maybe blew as many calls as they they do or whatever there just wasn't as much scrutiny on it i think now it's just really brought to light and uh you know there's a call for automation which i don't necessarily disagree with uh but i also don't care that much um there's a human element to baseball just like and i i try to tell our players that if you're walking in the woods and you like tripped on a rock and like busted your knee open it wouldn't be very logical to like get mad at the rock you know it's just like part of nature and i try to i always sort of took the mindset that like the umpires and the other players were part of the environment, which were part of nature, which are just part of things that I couldn't control at all. And they weren't things that were trying to screw me either. So, you know, I, I know Justin Verlander's brother, who's a minor leaguer, commented that like Major League Baseball was trying to get the Red Sox and Dodgers in the World Series. That's why they they botched that Altuve call. That Altuve call was not clear. It was probably the right call, the one he made, but it was certainly not clear enough to say, like, he definitely blew the call. It wasn't clear enough to say that he definitely made the right call, but it looked like, from all the evidence from some of the smarter baseball guys who really did some deep analysis on it, uh, it looked like it was the right call. Whether you believe that or not, um, when you stop, like, blaming an, a human being, like, that guy screwed me, it like, that's more logical in a sense, than like blaming a rock. Like if you tripped on, you run to first base and you trip on a piece of dirt or you you catch your cleat on, you know, a, a piece of grass, a big chunk of grass, or you just slip out of the box, you would never say that the dirt screwed you over. That would just be like you're an insane person. But yet when an umpire calls you out on something you disagree with, you say that he screwed you, right? But th there's no difference. The umpires are not trying to do that. Players are not trying to screw you over. Your own team's not. The other team's not. It's uh, and when you just realize like they're they're all there's no difference between the umpire impacting your game and a bad hop from the from the ground from the ground impacting your game, um, or a a, piece, a a bad wet patch of grass or a piece of mud or whatever a patch of mud. All those factors impact your game e equally, where it doesn't make any difference why you got screwed or, or which being or which non-being screwed you over uh just like just move on just deal with it just just include them all in the same pile all just lump the umpires everyone else together as all being things that just like are part of the environment they're part of the baseball field that should just be these things happen um but in general, the umpires are extremely good in the major leagues, and I think we give them a lot of grief. And it's not to say they can't be better, because I'm sure they can. But they're, I mean, compared to like lower level uh, umpires, they're astonishingly good, astonishingly good. As are the fielders. I think I think it's unappreciated how good uh, major league fielders are. How infielders, every throw they make is on the run, pretty much. Not really, but think about how many throws. Anything that's on the grass that they field, they're throwing it on the run. Anything that's like more than a handful of steps in any direction, they're throwing the ball on the run without stop, stopping and setting their feet, without taking a shuffle, without taking a crow hop. They're just throwing on the run. And they still make every single play. They make like every, literally every single play. 
it's astonishing. It's really crazy. When you watch young kids try to do this, they throw away every like 10th ball or every eighth ball, every sixth ball that they're throwing on the wrong. Cause it's not easy to do that. You know, you're, you're going one direction. You throw it behind your body to a small target on the other side of the field. And they do that literally every time and, and never miss. It's just crazy that they're that good. And I think it just goes really underappreciated. And as I've been learning new infield techniques to teach our kids, because we just have to get better at fielding and I have to get better as an instructor. Uh, it just gives me more of an appreciation like that these guys do this. They throw from a million different arm angles. They throw from moving in any given direction from an, any given trunk angle, and they still hit their target like literally every time. It's just, it's miraculous. So if you've been watching Little League Baseball a bunch or high school baseball or college baseball, just like take a step back and marvel at major leaguers because they're just ridiculous, like how good they are and how far they'll range back to catch a pop-up, a blooper, a tweener. It's just unbelievable. So I think that more and more I appreciate high-level fielders more than I ever have. And I appreciate this at the end of my career. I saw the difference between lower-level guys and high-level guys, but uh, it's, it's just crazy how good they are. Um, and then the last thing is just how not obvious coaching moves are. It's really easy to be a, 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 a desk coach. And with internet, there's more than more than, than ever. But a lot of these coaching moves are not nearly as obvious as they seem to be. And the postseason is extremely confusing, and I'm confused by it. I don't agree with a lot of it. But just because I'm behind my computer watching it on Sling TV or whatever doesn't mean... I'm qualified to judge, but at the same time, a lot of these coaching moves, like, oh, just go to this guy, just go to that guy. Oh, just put him back out there for another inning. There's so many other factors involved, and uh, they have a lot more data at hand, and even then, it's still not obvious, like, what the best, the right move is. It's sometimes obvious after the fact, where you, you have hindsight, and you'd be like, oh, you should have done this, oh, you should have done that, or why the umpire do, or why the, the manager do this, or why the pitching coach do that. Uh it's just not nearly as obvious when you're in the game, when there's a lot more context than you realize. And I think we as fans, myself included, jump to conclusions a lot where you're like, I don't know why he did that. Uh, it just doesn't seem to make sense. And a lot of times they won't tell you the reason that they do it. And they're not always right, for sure. A lot of times we question it and we are correct and correct in questioning it. And they do make just bonehead play sometimes. But a lot of times it just is just not clear when you're out there when to hook a pitcher, when to pull the next guy in. Because say, for example, you have your starting pitcher up and it's in, it's in the fifth inning, and say you're in the regular season, and you're not going to bring your, your eighth inning guy, you're not going to bring your closer in, you're going to bring one of your middle relievers in. Uh, is your, your fresh middle reliever better than your now getting mostly depleted starter? You know, Should you give the guy one more out? Now that he's got second and third and two outs and uh, you got a one-run cushion, do you now yank him because you want a fresh guy in that high leverage situation, or do you still kind of ride when your best pitchers, you know, when your starters? Do you say, oh, he's he's great at bearing down in these situations? Sure, he might mentally be, but can he physically do it? You know, it's it's uh, the art of taking a pitcher out before the bad stuff happens. It's it's very difficult, and there's no like right way to know when his dogs are completely barking. And I know that I've gone out. I remember specifically, very specifically, the first time this happened. I was in my first year. I was with the normal corn belters. It was maybe like inning 80 on the year for me. 
and that was as many innings I'd ever pitched in a season. And I was cons- my coach sent me out for 120 pitches, rain or shine, pretty much every game. And I was happy to do it. And I had thrown, I think, like 106 or 107 or something. And I just finished my seventh inning. And I, like, didn't know how I finished it. I just, like, barely got out of it. I felt like I didn't know where the ball was going. And he comes over and he goes, hey, Blue, got one more? I'm like, yeah. Like, I didn't really. Like, I, I really needed him at that point to, like, be the manager and say, hey, good job, way to battle it. Uh, you're done. But he, like, asked me, and I'm not going to say no. So I was like, yeah, all right. And deep down, I'm like, I'm like ah, this is BS. I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to ruin the game for my team and for myself. I've, like, made it. Like, I think to that point, I made, like, seven innings, three runs or something. And I was very confident I was going to go out there and give it four runs. Like, for sure, I was going to give it up. Because I barely got out of the last inning. And I knew myself. I just was not throwing, I was not throwing the ball where I wanted it to go. I just had, like, no idea. And so I went back out there, and it was, like, pop-up, fly ball, pop-up. And I came back in, I finished the eighth inning, and I was like, wow, that was really weird. I was very sure I had nothing, uh, and I got through it. So the manager wouldn't know how I was feeling, and if he did, he would yank me, because mentally, I was, like, checking out. And, uh, of course, like, mentally, I summoned I summoned it. I went back out there, and I gritted my teeth and did as best I could for my team. I didn't go out there and just, like, woe is me. I went out there, and I did the absolute best I could, and I competed, However, I just like knew like my my gas tank was empty, like I just knew, and uh, he didn't know that, and he just you know he like made the wrong move that day for sure, but he got the good result, and I got a good result, which is great, but it's just like not completely obvious. So if you watch that game, you'd say, yeah, good job, leave him blew it in, but like if you put me out there ten times in that same exact situation, I'd probably give up that four runs probably like six of the times. So it's just hard to know when we're going to get burned by that stuff. And I think managers often operate with incomplete information, even with sabermetrics and all the stat cast data and all the crazy analytics that we have. That stuff still just sits up in the front office and it gets flooded down. But the manager is still making decisions and they have a plan. But as it goes along in the game, like you still have stuff like that, the human element where you just don't really know. Was that, is this this the right time? Like, do I need to get him now? Or he can probably battle out through one where you start to like romanticize and, and guess what a, a hitter or pitcher's psyche is like. And it's just like, I would give the benefit of the doubt to coaches more often. I guess that's maybe, maybe that's what I'm imploring or just think about what other contextual things might, there might be that maybe you're missing that you're not privy to because there's often a lot of it. And I still, my thing with the postseason this year is I don't think just because you're in the postseason, you just put your best guys out there, your best like three pitchers, whether they're depleted or not, because I firmly believe in the Cubs 2016 absolutely prove this without a doubt that your best pitcher when he's run ragged is not your best pitcher. He's the best name, right? That's like having, um, you know, like a bottle of your favorite champagne that is rotten. Like it's still whatever champagne name is. God, my analogies are brutal, uh, but it's like rotten. So it's like, don't, it's not, it's not world-class anymore. Like, it's spoiled. And Chapman in 2016, when Madden just kept running him out there for three innings at a time and three innings at a time and two days in a row, he just did it wrong. I mean, and I think in the postseason, everyone just gets so scared to make a mistake. Like, why didn't you just leave Josh Hader in there? Why didn't you just let Josh Hader pitch the whole game? And that's, the I think, the test that we need to make is, okay, 
Well, all right, so Josh Hader's amazing for one inning, right? Everyone would agree. Well, would we let him pitch all nine innings? Everyone would say, absolutely not. Well, then you say, why? Well, he'd get, like, he'd get tired. You get through the, the, the order too many times. He's not built for that. Okay, well, you definitely let him pitch one inning, but you definitely would not let him pitch nine innings. So where's the tipping point, right? Is it five innings? Do you just make him a starter now, miraculously? I think everyone would also probably agree not to do that right away. Well, if you wouldn't have him go seven innings, then would you have him go five? No. Would you have him go four? Uh, maybe. Would you have him go three? Well, then what's the science behind that? You're, like, you're just guessing? You're like it feels too long or it feels too short? Well, pitchers are just like anyone else. They get depleted. And if Josh Hader at 100% is like better than everyone, Josh Hader, when he's at 80%, is probably not better than like two or three or four other guys in the bullpen. Because he's just not going to have the spin. He's not going to have the feel. He's not going to have the command. Your stuff just gets worse. And we have to realize that our best pitchers are not our best pitchers when they're tired. It's just how it is. Just like, you know, Jose Altuve, he might be Jose Altuve with a banged up knee. But if his ACL was torn, he could not play, right? So there's still there's that stuff with all that stuff. Um, where's the line where they can still be themselves, where it's rather just like put another guy in at second base because Altuve is too hurt to be Altuve. Like he's not Altuve anymore. So I just I really disagree with a lot of the playoff usage where it's just like, all right, we're just going to make our starters relievers. Our relievers are starters. Uh, we're just going to throw our best guys in there. If this guy pitched really well on Tuesday, he's going to pitch four more innings on Thursday. I just don't think that makes sense. Like, and, if, and if you won 108 games like the Red Sox with your team in a normal way, why is that not good enough in the playoffs? I don't, I don't really get it. I get you that you kind of go with the hot hand, but I feel like I feel like there's been a lot of decisions made based on emotion and based on fear, where it's like I'm too scared to lose with my third best reliever, so I'm just going to leave my best reliever out there until he literally dies, until his arm explodes and he throws. He's not throwing 98. He's not throwing 93 because he's so tired. Like I don't think that's better. Like if you have Clayton Kershaw going out there and he's throwing 85, is he still Clayton Kershaw? He's still probably Clayton Kershaw 89 because he pitched like that the other day. But is he still Clayton Kershaw? He's throwing 84. He's definitely not. He can't pitch the same way. So I don't know. I just think uh, coaching decisions are certainly questionable at times. And I think oftentimes there's other contextual stuff that we don't know. And I think it's not always as obvious as it might seem what the right thing to do is, including going to your best guys every time when you're scared. So anyway, there you have it. Um, Again, feel free to shoot me a, a message. Let me know. Again, I'm not looking for an, a praise or anything like that. That's not my goal. If you feel like, hey, this is kind of who you're talking to, Dan, and this is kind of what I listen for, really valuable to me because uh, I produce YouTube videos, all this other stuff that's hopefully relevant to whoever my audience is. And I'm, still, I'm starting to figure it out a little bit. But again, feel free to reach out. Would love to, to hear from you. All right, see you next week on Dear Baseball Gods.